You are listening to another episode of Even Baddies Wear Helmets, the podcast all about children's TV and the wonderful people who make it. My name is Billy Collins, I will be your host, and today's episode is all about factual entertainment. The stuff that's not quite documentary, not quite straight entertainment, so what actually is it? Well, our guest today is here to help us answer that very question. Faraz Osman is Managing Director of Goldwaller. He has over 15 years of experience in TV, online and media production. He was previously Editor of Education at Channel 4, commissioning Battlefront, remember Battlefront, um, which won an Emmy, as well as E4's highest rated documentary, Don't Blame Facebook. Faraz sits on the BAFTA Children's Committee. He is a media commentator for places like Broadcast and The Guardian. And in 2018, he set up Goldwaller, a new creative agency working on innovative formats for broadcasters, brands and content platforms. Recently, he was executive producer on What's On Your Head for CBeebies, a wonderful show about the different things people wear on their heads, which we will talk more about later. And if you haven't seen it, you need to go and watch it now because it will make you very happy. So this episode is about a few things. As I said, it's about factual entertainment, something we've not really dug into yet on Even Baddies. Um, it's also about setting up and running an indie, especially in the wake of the pandemic. And as always, it's about how to make brilliant content for children and young people. It's going to be a good one, so get yourself a cuppa and let's get started. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. We've just been saying that the sun is shining and this is our allotted sunshine for the day in Manchester. I think within exactly. an hour our, we will have Noah's our, Ark situation. Our, our government allotted sunshine and there'll be, like a, there'll be some sort of press conference saying, that's it, you're done, go back inside. <laughs> no more vitamin D for you today, sir. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have you uh, on the podcast. I, I mean, we're here to talk a little bit about um, factual entertainment, about setting up an indie, things like that. I mean, factual entertainment is something that we didn't really cover in the first series. We didn't really go beyond sort of drama, really, or comedy in the first series. So it's it's very exciting for me. Um, you're currently managing director at Goldwaller. But I mean, prior to that, you've worked all sorts of all sorts of roles from producing to commissioning. I mean, you also work as a media commentator, you lecture, you're on a number of advisory committees and panels. In your own words, what do you do for a living? How would you describe oh, your work? Um, <laughs> Oh god, that's that's like that's gonna be the hardest question already. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. I can't do this, Billy. Let's go. Um, I, I think I think you know. In the main, my main day to day role is is running an independent production company. But because it's so small, um, that involves everything from developing to pitching to putting together teams to sorting out bank accounts to doing with the legals. Um, and and also obviously making sure that we are connected with the industry in the best possible way. So that's kind of why advisory committees and, and doing great podcasts like this I think are really important but I think in the main I think the reality is is I'm just an absolute telly nerd and I just love the industry it's just a kind of like built-in passion and you know they always say do what you love um so this is where this is where I am but yeah it's it's a kind of it is a real mix of things like you said but that's the reality of, of running a small business that's really interesting that it's kind of yeah by necessity have to understand every single aspect and every stage of the process and 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 you can't do that without without the real passion and love for it. I mean, where where did that passion for for television come from? Where did it begin? I think that like I when I was when I was quite young and I was you know in secondary school, I was you know I was the only ethnic minority in my school, and 
um, you know, I always felt like I was a bit of an outsider. Um, and there was a, you know, it was the, it was in the kind of 90s when computing was becoming a bigger thing and everyone was a bit like, oh, for us, he's going to go into computing. That's going to be his thing. He's Asian. He'll be good at maths and good at kind of hitting a keyboard. And I kind of had, I guess, a bit of a rebellion against that. Um, my my middle child syndrome kicked in um, and I felt like there was you know this kind of strange industry that was broadcasting that I just got more and more fascinated by you know I really loved radio at the time and um, was kind of just really interested about how the science and technology of broadcasting mixed with the kind of like creative storytelling um, and that just kind of together felt like it was an, a really interesting space so when I when I went to university I didn't kind of go with grand ambitions of working in TV or working in film or wanting to be a kind of auteur director or anything like that. I just was genuinely interested in in the kind of sociology and the science and the anthropology of of what broadcasting was and and what it was trying to do. Um, so yeah, I kind of just studied it and then and then from there just got more and more into it and then realised actually I need to earn some money out of this and and that's kind of why I ended up working in TV. Amazing. Uh, that's. That is really, really interesting. That's fascinating. I love, I love hearing about all of these different routes. And it's interesting to hear you say as well that you were fascinated with television and with broadcast, but not necessarily with sort of directing or writing, which I think is often, you know, if you ask teenagers who are interested in TV, or like, what do you want to do? They're like, oh, I want to be a director. I want to be an actor. How did mm. you gravitate towards kind of production and producing then? Well, so I... Um... When I was at university, I went to Goldsmiths University and they have a really strong course there for media and communications. And it was at the time when media was still seen as very much a, you know, a Mickey Mouse course. You, you know, you really did it if you weren't clever enough to do English. But, but Goldsmiths was, was very much a quite uh, prestigious, I guess, um, media course. And one of the things that they did really well is that they had a 50-50 split between academia and practical. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, kind of my techie nerdiness meant that I was always up for kind of picking up a camera or tinkering with an edit suite or whatever it might be um and so that kind of really appealed to me to kind of have that split particularly when I wasn't completely sold on exactly what it is I wanted to do so I I had started that at university but then from there I realized quite early on that the industry itself was all about contacts and all about who you knew and like what real world experience you had so I ended up doing blagging my way into doing some work experience for a radio production company called Wise Buddha, um, who at the time were like running the dance music scene. So they did mm. Pete Tom's Essential Selection, Seth Fontaine's show, Marianne Hobbs's show, Judge Jules back in the day. Um, and then when I left, um, when I, it's actually quite a dark story, actually. When I, um, when I finished my, so when I was in my third year, I had done quite a lot of work for, Wise Buddha, they kind of kept me on as a, as a kind of freelance production assistant runner type role, but very much very, very junior. And it was run by Mark Goodyear, who was, who was like a, an, a, a legend in the radio scene. And he said to me, he said, look, we want to offer you a job, but we want you to go away and finish your degree first. So go away and finish your degree. And then the day you finish it, come and give us a call and we'll start your contract from there. And I was mm. really like, oh my God, this is amazing. Mm. I have a, I've just done a media degree and I have a job. This is like <laughs> unheard of, what is going on? So I was like walking on cloud nine. And then the day I finished, I handed in my, it's actually a documentary. We did documentaries instead of a dissertation. So the day I handed in my documentary, I called the HR department, the, the, the woman that ran HR there. And I said, oh, 
when can I start? Like, I'm done. Let's go. Can I come in next week? And she started crying down the phone to me. And I was like, oh my God, what's happened? And she was like, oh, we've just announced our liquidation. Like, the company's gone. And I was like, oh, uh, oh, how do you spell liquidation? Do I put that on my CV? Like, I was like so green. And I was a bit like, what the hell does this mean now? So it kind of like the dream collapsed before it even started. And then I literally, oh my God, this shows how old I am now. Um, I then saw an advert in the Media Garden Guardian newspaper. Um, the actual, in the print These were the days. The days of the days <laughs> for a, a research at the Asian Programs Unit up in Birmingham. And I went, I can do that. And I literally no idea what it meant. I was a bit like, I've just done a degree. I could do telly. Like, I'm Asian. So I, I wore a suit to my interview. Don't wear a suit to interviews. Anybody that's listening to this that's looking to get into the media industry, do not wear a suit to interviews. Top tip number one. Exactly. Um, and, and went up there and spoke to an amazing, had an interview with this amazing exec called Tommy Nagra, who kind of saw a, a kind of mix of confidence and arrogance and creativity in me and kind of gave me a punt. And then from there, that's how I got into telly and, and haven't really left it since. Oh. It's a great story. And, and I mean, to go from that low to that high as well, that sort of, oh, well, the company's gone. That's that's intense. And I, I think it's interesting as well to hear you talk about kind of studying bits of documentary, but then also working in radio and music coming into it. And you've made a lot of work kind of in the realm of, of factual entertainment shows like you know, um, E4's Battlefront to My Mates Muslim for BBC Three. And a lot of it for, for, for teen or young audiences and a lot of kind of multi-platform work as well. And I, I like to ask really basic questions, but as somebody who's made a lot of it, what is factual entertainment? What purpose oh. does it serve, like especially for young audiences? Come on, that's not an easy question. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, factual entertainment actually is quite an easy question. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It's entertaining things that happen to be based in fact. Um, so really the world is split into two when it comes to, I guess, content. It's, it's scripted and unscripted. Um, and, and scripted is a, uh, it is obvious, it's comedy, it's drama, um, and it's things that kind of are, are written, and, and actually a lot of it is predetermined before you press record on a camera. Factual entertainment is, is in the unscripted space, so you kind of do as much pre-planning as you can, but really the majority of the work is done in the record and in the edit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you end up kind of filming a lot of stuff, trying to get the ratios right, but filming a lot of stuff, getting it into the edit, and then crafting a film that fits in a, a particular deliverable time slot. So, be that half an hour on on a broadcast or thirty seconds on Instagram. Um, it's it's all kind of based on what footage you've got and and what stories you can make out of it from there. So, factual entertainment is is in that is in that world, and it's just more it's it's less kind of documentary. Um, but it's more and more um uh it's 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 more based around a construct so you are you're kind of creating a format and an idea and then you're kind of putting the jigsaw pieces together to to tell a unique story within the confines of that kind of fairly um recognizable format Oh, and, and you mentioned um, Instagram there as well, because you've made stuff that has appeared on so many different platforms and is, is, is varied both in terms of content and platform, but also audience. Um, but at the same time, despite that variation, there seem to be sort of common threads in, in the shows that you've worked on, questions of kind of young people's engagement in society, identity, language. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, what do you look for in the content you produce? What gets you excited? Um, well, two things. What can pay the bills as a small business? <laughs> and, and, what, and what we feel like is, is what we feel as a, as, a, as a company and a collection of creatives that, that we can do, I guess, 
I mean, frankly, better than anybody else. And and that's mm. always that's always a task is to kind of go, look, you know, this is this is an interesting story, but also I always say this to everyone I speak to, it's a bit like, okay, well, this is cool, but why should you be the people or why mm. should we be the people that tell that story? And and that sometimes is, is really, really difficult to kind of um uh to kind of navigate because just because you have a particular interest in a particular world doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best person to tell that mm. story. And and we have this a lot with people that either pitch stories to us or, you know, talent that we're working with or production teams that, you know, that we put together and be like, it'll be really great if we solve climate change. And I'm a bit like, yeah, but why are we the people to solve climate change? Mm. If we have, you know, an incredible team of ecologists and, you know, I don't know, marine biologists and uh, and uh, scientists and uh, people, then, then yeah, that would make sense. And, and that's why when you look at like the big natural history programming, a lot of those come out of Bristol um, because there's an amazing group of creatives that have got loads of experience in that world. And, and that's why you get kind of different space. So Manchester, they've got a really great children's um, community up there. And so you'll see a lot of programming in the children's space being made up in Manchester as a result mm. um, because the talent pool is there and that's kind of where it, it kind of is, um, uh, is, is, is most prolific. So I, I think that like we all are always trying to looking, we're looking for stories that, you know, we can tell in a way that is interesting and new and fresh, but, but also the other challenge as well is, is, it is a commissioned based industry so we have people come to us and say, okay, you look like the sort of company or the sort of people that can tell this story really, really well. Can you picture something or can you give us some creative based around this subject um, and uh, that we can consider? So it's, it's not like, it's not literally like, oh, well, you know, we wake up in the morning and go, let's make a TV program about this. It's, mm. you know, we do have to kind of walk the tightrope of what the market wants, what we think we can do best and, and what we think audiences want as well. You wrote an article for Broadcast um, in, re- in response to BBC Three going online, um, which is a decision that has now kind of been reversed, um, arguing that the kind of BBC was leaving young audiences behind, particularly teenagers. Um, and it's something that kind of came up in my chat with Holly Phillips about teen drama in series one. Um, I mean, that, that article mm. was in 2014. We're now in 2021. Do you think young audiences are still being forgotten? Do you think anything's changed since, since you wrote that? I think, I think, the, I think the crisis is, is like people are starting to sit up and take notice of it now. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think my, actually my main, my main concern about BBC Three being taken off air was, was less about the fact that there wasn't a TV channel about it anymore, even though I really believed that, you know, that point of difference made BBC Three, you know, uh, more interesting than just being another BuzzFeed or Vice or any of those MCNs mm-hmm. that were around at the time. But my, my, main, my main concern was, was the budgets being cut. So the budgets mm-hmm. of BBC Three at the time were significantly reduced to kind of make way for more premium drama and, uh, and, and the like. And I think that those things combined gave me like real pause because, you know, it was quite clear to me that younger audiences weren't as enamoured by the BBC because they hadn't grown up in this world where there were just four TV channels and, mm. you know, a, a very um, small pool of, of media outlets. You know, the internet has meant that anyone can be a broadcaster now. Mm. And and if we're going to be, get, if we're going to kind of make sure that content is safe and valuable, um, it, it does need to be curated in some way. And, uh, and as we've seen by the kind of horrors that social media has unleashed in the last, you know, four or five years, 
it, it was clear and evident to me that that having having the BBC do stuff for young young viewers is, is going to be really important, as it is for all broadcasters that are regulated in in a kind of light touch way. So I think that for, for me, I kind of saw, you know, I was working at I just left Channel Four. I was I was working in education at Channel Four, making kind of programming for teenagers, and, and then I joined a production company called Lemonade Money, who were doing stuff for younger audiences. And and I, like, I saw it like no one cared. Like you know the, the young the young creatives that we're working with were a bit like. It doesn't matter. I want to work for Vice, and I want to work for mm. you know for record labels and Red Bull and etc. And I was a bit like, yeah, but that doesn't feel like it's got the same cultural purpose as something like the BBC has. Um, and and so and now the conversations. There are some things that are happening. So the BFI doing the Young Audience Content Fund, and I think you might have had Jackie on this podcast yes, yeah, um, yeah. as part of that. You know, all of those sort of things are really really valuable because it is clear to me that. Um, the intervention to making sure that the funding gap can be plugged is 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 really really valuable mm. and we can't just rely on the bbc to do it um and and so it seems like with things like the success of of that fund um a, alongside the fact that we've now got SVODs, so you know disney plus being a runaway success I've, i kind of really strongly firmly believe that we're going to see a renaissance around children's programming now because mm. if you've got kids and you've got a disney plus subscription and you're and you know you're like me at the moment. I've I'm, this, this is how much of a nerd I am. I've got an Amazon <laughs> subscription at Disney, and it's not like I'm particularly wealthy. So this is like this is just because I'm obsessed with content. But I've got an Amazon subscription, a Disney subscription, a Netflix subscription, uh, an Apple TV subscription because it's free at the moment. I've got a Sky subscription and a license fee. Um, and you know it, one of those is going to have to go sooner or later. And if I'm now, I'm now a father of it's too much. Of a four, I'm a father of a four-year-old, and I've got yeah. one on the way. If I try and cancel Disney now, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's like it's game over. And I think that kind of SVOD's going to become savvy to that, where they're like, actually, we need to lean into kids' content because that's the thing that's going to be sticky. Um, the mm-hmm. high-end drama stuff, fine, that kind of gets the eyeballs, that gets you lots of awards and Oscars and BAFTAs, etc. But actually, the stuff that's going to keep you subscribing is is going to be your kids pestering you, saying, how dare you turn off Sophia the First or, or <laughs> Jake and the Medvedland Pirates. Amazing. I mean, speaking of addictive and brilliant children's content, this is a seamless segue that you're about to witness. I'm loving it. Um, I'm already loving it. <laughs> I would love to go into a bit more detail about a show you've made recently, What's on Your Head, the CBBS. It's a beautiful show. It introduces children to all sorts of different headgear worn by people who work in different jobs or come from different cultures and religions you're from helicopter helmets to hijabs can you just tell me a bit about where the idea for the for the show first came from where the seed started it came from tesco's um (laughs) because i i just remember it was at the beginning it was the beginning of the pandemic and um i remember walking into tesco you know it was a time when like you had to queue to get into Tesco's and it's like, mm. it was like really dystopian and like, uh, you just didn't know what's happening. And I remember I was with my daughter and you weren't allowed in unless you kind of were like in a hazmat suit or, and you know, had, had gone through some sort <laughs> Showered of- Showered like, in antibiotics. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and I walked in and I saw this, this woman wearing, and I'm sure you've seen it now, but I saw this woman wearing this face shield. So she wasn't wearing a mask. She was wearing one of those visors that looked like she was from in in like Robocop or something. And I was like, that's wild. Like we've gone from a space where um, people, and, and actually at the time there, there wasn't a mask mandate. So there was kind of like this weird situation where some people were wearing masks, 
but like other people weren't because they're were like, oh, actually, you need to make sure that they're safe for medical professionals. And then there was lots of questions about what masks actually do and how how having a cloth mask is that really effective and is it stopping a virus and etc. So there was it was really early pandemic days and um and I saw this woman wearing his face shield and I was like like why like what is going on there what's the story behind that and like where do you buy those and what are they actually for and you know what's what's happening and then from there you know obviously I'm from a Muslim background and hijabs and and head coverings and face coverings and was then a bit of a light bulb moment where we were a bit like well hang on a minute this feels like a really obvious way of of you know just bringing human beings to life because of the things that they wear on their heads and that's their entry point it was a bit like well actually this is just a really smart way into curiosity um where we can get people on screen um who do wear different things on their head and kind of just tell the stories behind them yeah that that idea of curiosity and, and the as you say the kind of innate sort of <laughs> disposition for asking questions that kids have it's something that we kind of I think we talked a little bit um with Cita Thomas when we were talking about making content surrounding pride for for children Mm. and like how do you approach these subjects of identity from their perspective and what what are the questions that they have and what is sort of important to them in that moment and it's it's yeah it's and and as you say it's a simple thing but it's it's it works so well um and, and once once you had that initial idea how did that that format develop kind of what changed what stayed the same as you were going forward with it it, it happened honestly it happened so quickly um because we got we got a brief in from uh there was there was all sorts of craziness going on in the industry at the time because all of these shows that had been commissioned and you know was kind of going and was in the schedules etc everything just kind of collapsed because it's like we can't finish shows because we're not allowed to record or you know you can't do dramas because the close contact between people meant that you had to change storylines etc so there were there were gaps in the schedules and and this brief came out and we responded to it and, and it was it was wild within um b- from pitching it to getting it on air was was only a matter of months which is very very short in the tv world um so we didn't have a huge amount of time for uh for maneuver on on the creativity of it and and you know it's quite a, it's quite a short show it's quite a, you know again it's does what it says on the tin which a lot of the best ideas do mm. um so there wasn't a huge amount from a maneuver but the, the kind of the key things that that did change creatively was um uh one was a big kind of well not big but one one was a kind of major uh um format change and then two were i would argue two very fun and amazing things which i'll get into it slightly but the kind of from the format change it was we realized quite early on that actually we could ourselves fall into stereotypes around the casting. Mm. So when we looked at casting um, the characters, we wanted to do what we can to just subtly subverse stereotypes because we felt that the first time that, you know, because this audience is so young and they're stuck at home, the people that appear on screen could be the first time that young kids will have heard voices from those communities so such an amazing thought sorry that's yeah, like, yeah so so for and, and actually the one the, the the place where it's kind of is most evident is is alexander wilson who's the the barrister and mm. you know and she tweeted about it as well she's a bit like this is wild like are we're gonna get a situation where a lot of kids the first time that they see somebody from the legal profession that person will be female mixed mm. race and young and mm. if you if you close your eyes and you think of a barrister or a judge or anybody from the legal profession you will see them as old, white, and male, right? Mm-hmm. And and now, you know, by so by doing this at the very... And again, same thing's true, our firefighter 
she was black, she was female, she was short, right? Mm-hmm. Again, the classic firefighter is is you know you go to you go to a fancy dress shop and you look at the the firefighter costume yeah. and it's invariably <laughs> like a, a very well um, you know chiseled white man. Um, mm. and, uh, and, and, you know, you, if, if you want to be a firefighter, you're like, well, if I don't look like that, then I'll never be a firefighter. So we kind of mm. saw that responsibility along the way, you know, our Sikh is a model, the hijab wearer is a, is a personal trainer and a fitness coach. You know, we kind of saw that this is an opportunity to kind of get interesting people that weren't inverted commas, the normal stereotype of, of, mm. of what you thought those, um, uh, those professions or cultures were. And and I think that that ended up being quite a valuable part of the, of the treatment and of the of the show itself. It wasn't like a sledgehammer over the head. It was just like I'm a barrister, like yeah. let me tell you about it. Like you know I'm a firefighter. Let me tell you about it. There was it was never like oh I'm I'm a pioneer because I'm black and female. It was like I'm just a firefighter. This is this is now normality, um, and and that kind of was really really valuable. And then the two other things that like I keep telling everybody who will listen about is is our voiceover <laughs> which was from Nadia Hussein yes, which we wanted yeah. who, who we were originally we hoped to get in for an episode so she was going to be the hijab episode um but the, the you know schedules didn't quite work um but then she loved the idea and the format so much that she agreed to to, to lend her voice to the to the production and and then the, the theme tune which is from I still can't believe this but the theme tune which is written by Basement Jacks um this um, is really strange, sorry, just because in the the episode that we've just recorded, it was with Ed Foster about his show, um, animated show, The Rubbish World of Dave Spud. Basement yes, Jackson did the music that. for that. I don't want to talk <laughs> about that because we thought that we were the first, but yes, The Rubbish World of Dave Spud had word, got there before us. I'm just like, um, a Basement Jacks like cornering some kind of niche here that they are really you know big what it in, is? in children. I, I think that, like, for, for, like, for us, um, my, uh, so, so for us, my, my view on it is that like, you know, Re- um, Remedy, which is the Basement Jack's breakthrough album, is awful. But it's now twenty-two years old, mm. so it means it means that a lot of people who were out raving to Basement Jacks are now, you know, parents. And yes. and so, um, and and actually, that kind of co-viewing is really important, particularly when you're looking at preschool kids. A lot of a lot of parents will sit down and watch programming together. It's why things like Hey Dougie is so popular. You know, so so theme tunes are, are a big part of that, and when we were briefing it out, we were a bit like, well, we want it to sound like Basement Jacks and where's your head out? Because we want it to kind of, you know, both me and my business partner, Jess, were both old ravers and, and you know, we just felt like if we can nod to that, then that's always a good thing and a bit of a kind of Easter egg for the parents. So we kind of, we, we kind of were using what's, uh, where's your head at as a reference when we were briefing composers. And then Jess was a bit like, why don't we just call Basement, like just tweet Basement Jacks and see what they're saying. <laughs> And we had done a lot of work in the music industry before, so we we knew the right people to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we just got to see my back saying, "Yeah, we, we, like all our tours have been cancelled. We've got nothing better to do. Let's write you a theme tune." Um, and they, they came back with. I, I will say, the original drafts were pretty out there. <laughs> 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 like the the original the original things that we got back from them were like, okay, this this is a bit a bit too wild even for us. <laughs> um, but what we landed That's on, a release an really album. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, so I think that I think that it's just that sort of music really works for both that co-viewing of, of parents and mm-hmm. um and but it has that energy and excitement and carnival joy that, that great kids programming has and, and I think that that's what those those boys are the best at. Yeah, 
Wicked. I mean, you've sort of touched on lots of things that I wanted to talk about. You know what, Billy? As you can probably tell, as you can probably tell, <laughs> I'm pretty enthusiastic about this show. It's like, no, I'm it's, not saying me it's too. That's why it's so like, exciting. It's so exciting I've to done, talk about. Like, I've done a lot of cool things in my time. You know, we when I'm working at Lemonade Money, we did a lot of work for Apple. So, you know, we worked with Elton John and One Direction and Pharrell Williams and etc. None of that compares to like doing a CBB show and having a four-year-old <laughs> daughter watch a show and then go to nursery the next day and go, my daddy made that. And you're like, that's it. I'm talking, I'm taking that one. That, that's before you can put all the other stuff aside. I mean, that, that is also something that I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit, actually, is, is something that came up in the last series is how kind of having children of your own can shape the content that you make in the kids sector. Because I know that you, you, I mean, you previously made a lot of content for teen audiences or for kind of young adult audiences. And this, I guess, preschool is a slightly new new territory I wonder does you know does being a dad inform your approach it sounds like it does <laughs> well like, I mean so my so my career trajectory I actually I actually did do a work in, a lot of work in children's before oh, okay. I even met my now wife um but I think that once I became a dad um your consum- obviously your consumption of that content goes through the roof um you know I'm not allowed to watch what I want to watch anymore it's like it's it, <laughs> other than between the hours of 11 p.m and 1 a.m it's and um so um you end up watching so much content out there for kids and just as somebody that works in the industry, you know, start thinking up ideas and, uh, and, and looking at how people are making stuff. And, and, and also it's kind of, like I said before, that space of authenticity, you know, make what you know and kind of make what you're good at. I, I think that if you go into a room and say, look, I really want to make the show because I know that the audience would love it because the audience happened to live in my house um that that is is very very valuable that's brilliant i mean speaking of parenthood and dads etc you've recently produced some short form drama for iplayer as well a monologue uh called yes. listen dad by kia abdullah um again it's lovely it's about a football mad girl who acts as a translator for her father can you just tell me a bit about that project how you got brought onto it why it was important for you to to kind of make that move to drama as well yeah i mean we like i said we haven't done a huge amount in the scripted space we've made music videos and, and again we knew people that were you know just this, this, this industry is still quite small and we knew people that were um uh, that were experts in that field um, but that wasn't that was an opportunity, and and it, this kind of lends itself to your your earlier question about like why you decide to make certain content. Uh, you know, there aren't many people of color running production companies, and that can be a bit of a blessing and a curse sometimes. Sometimes you're only briefed to make programs about your identity, mm. and you just want to make great prime time, cutting edge content that has nothing to do with your religion or your race or your gender or whatever it is. It's just good programming mm. um but other times you kind of see there as see that there's a responsibility and and also an opportunity to kind of make something that only you can make because of your your experiences so the brief for uh, a, a, a bunch of short monologues came out from bbc children's and they wanted to work with companies that hadn't had a particular track record in in making children's drama before um and we we wanted to do it and, and I made a conscious decision of only of, of wanting to kind of find Asian, you know, British Asian writers um, and who hadn't done kids TV before. So I kind of reached out to my my network um, in, in, in that world. And uh, and we had a number of stories that we had pitched all, all and we but they were all people from a British Asian background. Um, and Kia was somebody that I knew we had met a couple of times at various kind of networking events, but also kind of followed each other on Twitter and all that jazz. Um, and I kind of just tweeted her and said, look, there's this opportunity. 
I know you write thrillers <laughs> for like, you know, the best, best-selling thrillers, but like, have you ever thought about doing something for kids? And she was a bit like, that sounds like fun. And, yeah. and we just kind of got chatting. And then she told me about her background of being British Bengali and her dad not speaking English and, and it kind of organically grew from there. And she just gave us a really, really strong first first draft and it just kind of clicked together from there um uh, and and I think so and I think that like I said that was a real opportunity where we could tell an authentic story about a British Asian experience that that we could tell in a in a really positive way and uh and and I felt like you know we we put together a, a creative team that was predominantly South Asian um and, and we think that that's kind of really bled through to the to the kind of final product that's on screen. Um, yeah, and we're like we're like really proud of it. It was again a real challenge in the pandemic to do a drama of that scale um, and, uh, and and get it right. Um, but it's it's shot beautifully. A, a guy called Husman Faradi. Um, he's, he's I don't know if you've seen his credits, but he he's famous for doing the Call on Me video. Do you remember back in the day by um, Eric Prids, the one that's set in a gym. Um, it's like an iconic. It's, you'll, you'll know it as soon as you see it. You'll, you'll know it. It's, it's an iconic dance music video um, by Eric Prince. Um and he had also like he's done a documentary with David Guetta and has done a lot of music. Um, you know, did One Direction, one of One Directions, his music videos, and um, has done a lot of kind of blue chip music videos. But mm-hmm. wanted to kind of move in the in the drama space as well. Um, so we just kind of put together this really awesome team, um, and then found our actors who were brilliant. Um, and and yeah, somehow in a pandemic, made it work. I'd love to ask a little bit about um, Goldwaller, which is the company that you set up in 2018. Can you just tell me a little bit about why you wanted to start your own indie? Because uh, no one else would give me a job. Um, it's not, it's not it's just me being a bit facetious. Um, I, I, I kind of started it because um, me and my business partner, Jess, were working um, together at a different production company, um, but we both became parents at a similar age. Not not with the same child, obviously, but our own children. Um, and um, we, uh, we recognised that like while our, our previous production company was doing a lot of stuff in music, we felt like we wanted to do more and music is really great and I love it and I want to do more of it. And we're always pitching to kind of make music programming, but it's quite a, it's quite a um, small pool and there are lots of fish in it. Um, and so we wanted to do, we wanted to do more stuff and, and you know, children's is a, is a key part of that. Um, but also on top of that, you know, we were, we felt like there was space and a time for a new sort of production company um, in particular, that that um treated people with frankly a bit more respect you know this is a really brutal ruthless industry and there's always scandal at every every corner Mm. and and both Jess and I have kind of had very negative experiences and and we just felt like you know if we are going to run something we want to we're going to run it in a way that we feel is is positive and people have a strong experience but also it delivers really great content um and uh, and and it gives opportunities. So, like a lot of our staff are uh, are working part time, either because they are new parents or they um, they you know don't want to work full time for various reasons. Um, and they would normally get shut out by the wider industry. And and that and also with demographics as well. Like you know, we're always looking for people that are quote unquote outsiders a, a little bit because I I understand that experience having lived it myself in my earlier years. 
And and so we we see it as a USP that you know mm. we can bring together people from different backgrounds and then in the end come up with different stories that you you wouldn't get elsewhere from you know a more traditional corporate production company. Um, and it's you know hopefully it's working. You know we're, we're kind of picking up commissions in different spaces where people are like you know what they've got a different way of looking at things that is interesting and. And as we get into this continuing revolution of how people are consuming content and programming, my hope is, is it will be companies like us who are built and designed from day zero to kind of be able to nimbly move between six-part series on, on Netflix, hour-long series on Netflix, to, like I said, 15-second Instagram clips, um, because that's how audiences are consuming content. And, you know, we are aware of, of how to make it work on, on different platforms for different different audiences um, along the way. So, so I think that that's kind of why we felt like it was time to do it. And, uh, and, and now the next step is to kind of just grow it and, and you know, start rivaling the, uh, the, like I said, the more established companies um, and be able to do that because we're able to tell different stories. Amazing. And it's, it's really nice to hear as well, I guess, kind of asking questions on this podcast. I often I feel like I'm leading towards the questions that are about um, the kind of creative reasons behind things or, or, or the kind of artistic decisions, whereas to hear those really sort of um, more of the business side of things, but also just that that question of what is the working environment that we want to create? How do we want to manage people? How exactly. do we want our you know our company to feel as as a community that's really lovely to hear um yeah. and it sounds as well like you're really sort of um I was I was curious about kind of working through the pandemic as a small company and and you've sort of touched on it a bit in terms of being able to make so many different kinds of things it feels like you're quite well equipped for dealing with the challenges that that this year has kind of thrown up and I wondered how has the kind of pandemic been for you generally and what opportunities it's it's offered or sort of lessons that you've been able to take forward I mean we've we've had our best year by far um mm. and and that's not to say that I'm I'm, I'm hoping for another global pandemic no, thank you. <laughs> but but we but I you've think jinxed that, it now exactly <laughs> um no everyone get inoculated everyone get vaccinated now do that stop stop listening to this and go get vaccinated and then come back and press play again. um but I think that um we because we were small and nimble um and we're looking for opportunities now like it meant that that the the challenges that the whole industry faced were were challenges that we could step up to quite quickly. It's it's been a kind of like a a, a challenge kind of personally and you know and physically and mentally we've had similar challenges along the way. Um, and we've done things like you know wherever we can we try to create they because everybody who works in this industry generally are freelancers um so they will work for a number of different companies along the way and i really really strongly believe that our role is to create a positive working experience for freelancers so that when there's an opportunity to work for us we're at the front of the queue because we really yeah. believe that there's so much great talent out there that we have to give them a reason to say yes to a particular gig with us compared to somebody else and normally that's that's the programming that will do that but also we're hoping that we're building a reputation of being a great company to work for and and that corporate culture is diff it's difficult to shape when you haven't got an office or when you haven't got you know a, a team around a desk kind of like vibing off each other 
so you know we would do as much as we can that, that wasn't necessarily organized fun but we would you know send care packages out to people and you know we were offering um subscriptions to mental health apps and physical health apps you know where people could do it in their own time in their own way um and as well as kind of you know providing as much support as we can possibly do um, and being transparent to say you know what it's a hard time for all of us we will call you once the opportunities exist um and, and I, my sense is, is that that's been the, the biggest, I guess, gift out of the last year, that reputationally, I feel that people have recognised that, that a company like ours is, is one that people want to work with and not have to work with just because they need to pay the bills. Absolutely. Amazing. And, and kind of while we're on that, um, that finding opportunities and, and creating that culture where, where people are excited to work in the industry as opposed to kind of feeling sort of exactly. bogged down by it. Um, I mean, the pandemic has obviously thrown up so many different challenges, but I think especially now for kind of people entering the TV industry, especially people who kind of, as you said, you know, don't have industry connections. Um, it's, it's really difficult. And, and I think it can be tricky as well to get very solid, like practical advice that you can implement sort of short of like, you know, if you go to someone, can I have a job? No. Okay. Well, what next? You know what I mean? So um, do you have any advice for kind of people looking to, to work in TV? What can they be doing practically now that will it's, it's, improve their chances? You know what, Billy, it's, it's such a hard question. And, and I mm. wish, and, and that's kind of why every, every time this question comes up again and again and again and again, the, the, the truth is, is that we are not a, as, as much as anybody pretends otherwise, the, the way that the systems set up in our industry are quite poor. Um, and we are not a, um, we are not a kind of formal profession. Like, you know, if like when you want to go into medicine or you want to go into a lot of professions, classic professions, there is literally step by step by step and you get promoted along the way. And that's how it works. The creative industries and the media industry, and in particular, the TV industry, it just doesn't work like that. Um, and unfortunately, it is a combination of network, talent, and luck, frankly. But I, I think that they, the, the, the truth is, is, and the thing that I find most valuable is um, building advocates. And, and that it kind of works across the board. So if you're able to kind of go, look, you know, I, I think I'm really good at this, but here's somebody else who will advocate for me and be that as a mentor or be that somebody that you've worked with previously, or even that like you've got a group of mates who have made something together and you're all looking out for each other and you're going, look, you know, I've seen this opportunity over here. So I think that like, you know, try and try and find out what's out there, um, but not just like the shows that you want to make or the companies that are making that show, but the individuals that are making that content and, and try and just kind of build a rapport with them. Um, and like I said, just build advocate every single step of your career, just see it as building advocates, you know, try and meet people. Don't just kind of get to the end of your job, put it on your CV and go, right, I should be able to get another job based on what I've done previously. It's, it's really not about that. It's, it's about building a, a network of people that you trust and that trust you. That is really solid advice. And it's that's something that I hadn't really, I mean, the idea of building advocates throughout is something that I hadn't thought about before. So that's very, yeah, I'm sure lots of people will find that really useful. Um, and my final few questions, just to kind of lift us up ready for the day again. Um, <laughs> what are your hopes for children's content going ahead? Potentially, um, especially with regards to factual entertainment, what, what do you want to see more of or, or what haven't we seen yet? 
Um, that's a good question um, because I need to be thinking of new ideas that I could start selling out there. Um, I'd like to see a second series of What's in Your Head if there's any commissions. Um, and we're ready to distribute that worldwide as well if you've got any worldwide people that are out there. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that, like I, um, I, like I said earlier, kids' content is, is really valuable because it can touch on new subjects and and be a bit braver on on tackling the, the you know the really big issues around racial injustice around climate change um a, a, around what what the new working world is going to look like moving forward but I, I do i do really think that like if there are people out there listening to this that are um uh, are interested in children's programming and interested in young people's programming I really, really do see there being quite a significant opportunity coming up around Horizons because of those 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 um, things that I mentioned earlier around subscribers and, um, and and the way that the market has changed from being an advertising model um, to being a kind of subscriber straight to direct to consumer based model. And and I really do think that that will kind of open up new opportunities that aren't just based around merchandising. You know, it isn't just like, let's create a cartoon because we can sell those toys off the back of it. I, mm. I think we are going to see more and more um, content being made for kids um, that is just really, really premium from its from its outset. I'm buzzing to see all of this as well. I'm very excited. Um, and finally, a question that I ask everyone, you've said that you watch a lot of television than that you did as a kid. Um, was there a show that, that took precedent for you when you were younger or do you have a, a favourite children's television show now? Besides your own. <laughs> <laughs> Besides my own. Oh, you caught me. Um, like, you know what, the, the, thing, the, thing, look, the thing about kids TV is that it is so nostalgia heavy and it like stays mm. with you, you know, and, and so things like, the, I remember watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and, you know, Death mm. 2 when it was on BBC Two, when there was a, a real, there wasn't really much programming that had people of different skin colour on, on TV. And, and like, when you start seeing it come through America, it was, it was really, really exciting. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is, it is the best, best, the best telly is ones that kind of reflect you and, and your experiences and your joys. So, you know, things like Games Master and, you know, I remember a, a video game show called Bad Influence that I was really into. Um, it's, you know, when, when that video game generation was, was growing up and you started seeing it on screen, it was, it was really, really exciting. And those are the things that kind of, from a factual point of view, spring to mind. And then there are obviously the obvious is like Thundercats and Transformers. That like we all try to make with our home camcorders and our and our, <laughs> our toys doing really bad stop motion video along the way. Um, oh, but I think if that Lego that, didn't come out with the camera, Lego and one of the old digital cameras that was just right, and it's like you know press the record button until the tape wears out. Like you know that's that's kind of why why you get into this world is because actually um, and and the opportunities there that are now you know with my daughter we're always kind of messing around with cameras and you know making little videos and and having a laugh along the way and she's already understands you know, how cameras work and, you know, and, and that's kind of really, really exciting to see. So I do think that we're going to get a, a real generation of, of incredible creatives come through and, and I hope they'll see Kids TV as a space that they can make some really fun stuff in. Sorry, that wasn't an answer to your question. Storybots, that's really great. Watch Storybots, that's a lot of fun. Um, uh, there is, um, there's a lot of brilliant, I'm trying to think, actually I'm looking at my wife. What's our little one watching at the moment? She loves Jake and the Neverland Pirates. She's watching Dengineers. She, you know what? Actually, that's that's the thing that's freaking us out right now. So she's at the age now where she's slowly stopping watching CBBS and starting to watch CBC. Oh. And we're a bit like, no, you can just stay young forever, please. Can you stop doing that? So like, 
before long we'll kind of capture watching Riverdale and, and that's it we'll have to parents blocks on the TVs it's like amazing oh for us it's been so lovely to speak to you thank you so much for sharing you, all of your Lydia. insight um and I just yeah I, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and week thank you and do watch our shows and, and please tell everybody about them because uh, like I said we want a second series so we hope we get it you have been listening to Even Baddies Wear Helmets. The podcast was hosted by me, Billy Collins, produced by Cloda Chapman with music from Finley Stafford and our lovely logo was designed by Lucy Tiller. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find us on social media at Even Baddies Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you subscribe, share, tell your mates. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon.